Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Michael Whitmer correcting a number of urban legends of theology. It's, it's the American way, right? Uh, people think that is a verse in the Bible. Actually, it comes from Benjamin Franklin or Richard's Almanac. Uh, the, the Bible says, actually, God helps those who cannot help themselves. Michael Whitmer, next. Christian blogger Tim Challies writes, For every truth of the Christian faith, it seems there's a corresponding error. So it's a constant challenge to discern the right from the wrong, the truth from the error. That's exactly the challenge Dr. Michael Whitmer takes up in his new book, Urban Legends of Theology, 40 Common Misconceptions. He shows why these commonly held legends aren't correct. One example he takes a close look at is the frequently quoted statement, You should pray like it all depends on God, and work like it all depends on you. Dr. Whitmer teaches at Cornerstone Theological Seminary. Dr. Whitmer, what is an urban legend? So it's something that is widely held, popularly believed, but just not accurate when you think about it and dig down deep. And so, what is theology? Theology just means the study of God and things that relate to God. So, I teach theology in a seminary, and there's different doctrines like God himself, and then scripture, and creation, humanity, sin, Jesus, Holy Spirit, salvation, things to come, stuff like that. Okay, and you teach systematic theology. What is Mm -hmm. that, and how does that contrast with biblical theology? So, biblical theology is the foundation. You always start with scripture, Old and New Testament, and then Historical theology looks at how that's been developed across time through the last 2,000 years of church history, and then systematic theology builds on all of that and actually draws conclusions. And so, it's based on scripture and tradition, what is the truth about creation, humanity, sin, Jesus, salvation? So, systematic theology, it would it would arise out of uh, out of a particular tradition, in other words, whether Baptistic, Lutheran, Charismatic, they would each have their own systematic theologies. I mean, there's obviously much in common, but they'd have certain distinctives that would would set them mm-hmm. apart. Yeah, so there's the great tradition, which is like the big hallway, but then off this hallway, there's different rooms. There's the Baptist room, the Methodist room, the Lutheran room, the Reformed room, and then a whole other wrench was thrown in with the whole rise of the modern the modern age, because you have progressivism or theological liberalism, which is very different than the tradition. So, you can have a liberal Baptist and a conservative Baptist, and they don't have much in common at all, but they're both Baptists. But basically, think of a a hallway, the great tradition is a hallway, and then there's rooms off of each for different denominations. But then... With a liberal conservative divide, that just throws everything up in the air again. <laughs> and so, since each tradition has each Christian tradition, and I believe it was, if I remember correctly, C.S. Lewis used that analogy yeah, it, of the of the big hallway in the different rooms. Mere Christianity, yes. And, and so, these different traditions, and I'm just setting this up at the beginning as we talk, that there may be variations. In other words, one tradition may see something a little bit different, but it doesn't necessarily mean one is wrong and one is right. Right. So, it's important to um, 
we say major on the majors and um no what way i say it is if the bible is clear about something and if it's central and core i will say thus saith the lord in my biggest king james voice yep <laughs> but to the extent the bible's not clear or if the doctrine is not a major point i want to say i believe the bible says i think this is what god is saying and just dial it back Okay, and right at the top here, and I want to ask you about some specific ones that I've written down, but do you have, perhaps it's a strange question to ask, but a favorite urban legend that uh, particularly resonates with you for some reason, or maybe one that you hear most uh, in church or most uh, among your students? Well, one that jumps out, I mean, I have several favorites, but um, chapter 14, my body is a temporary residence for my immortal soul. I've heard that my whole life, and it sounds so spiritual that my body is just a shell. The real me is the eternal part, the soul. But I think now this is June, Pride Month, and um, we want to we we care desperately for people who are confused about their sexual orientation, their gender, all of that. But we cannot keep saying this urban legend that my body is just a shell for the real me, because that's exactly their point. That my my body might be male, but my spirit is female. I must change my body to match my soul. So the whole recent revolution in sex and gender should alert us to that urban legend. That's that's a dangerous thing to actually believe. The response is, uh, my joke is, we're humans. We're not hermit crabs. Our bodies aren't just shells, but our mm. bodies are a vital part of who we are. In fact, the Christian hope is for the resurrection. The resurrection is aimed, it targets your body. Your body is a vital part of you. It's not just your temporary residence. Now, when we talk about urban legends of theology, these aren't necessarily only held by, or you're saying these are held by some Christians, but you're, this one, particular one you talked about, is, is something that's just held in the culture in general. Well, this one I quoted from The Purpose Driven Life. So some of these legends are held by the culture, and some are held by both culture and Christians, and some are held just more by Christians. But I think um, anyone who reads the book, they'll be familiar with, they'll have heard all of them, and whether the culture or in church. And you may, and some of them, I guess, as people say, if you repeat something often enough, you'd come to believe it's true. And a lot of these have been repeated so many times. For some of them, you may not even question them. Well, and it sounds so pious and spiritual to say my the real me is my soul, not my body. Mm -hmm. Right off the top, uh, in the beginning of the book, it is important to believe in something, and it doesn't matter what. And I think, as I say that, the the average Christian will say, well, of course, that's obvious. But it, I'm thinking it's probably not as obvious as it seems, because you put it number one in your book, Urban Legends of Theology. Talk to us a little bit about that one. So that, I actually... Each of the chapters begin with a source of this, and this one, actually, I'm quoting The Crown, an episode of that popular Netflix show. But you hear it a lot in the culture, but even sometimes in church, that this separation of faith and knowledge, that it doesn't really matter what you believe, just believe in something. And, and if you have great faith, that's what counts. And so the first few chapters, I actually arranged a book in a theological sequence. So first we do, deal with... Theological, it's called theological method, so faith and knowledge and scripture. Then we talk about humanity, sin, and then Jesus, and we work towards the last things. Mm -hmm. Several of the first chapters deal with this um, dangerous separation between faith and knowledge, that faith just means believe in something. In fact, um, you hear this a lot in church. Faith begins when knowledge ends. 
that's a, mm. <laughs> a dangerous thing to actually try and to practice. No, faith means to commit, and wise believers only ever commit to what they know, not to what they don't. We will hurt ourselves if we give ourselves to something that may or may not be true. So we must not separate faith from knowledge. Knowledge is not enough. Demons know some things and tremble, but you can't believe in what you do not know. The next one, doctrine divides and love unites. You hear that so often. Um, What can you tell us about that one? Yeah, so that's from the early 20th century. That's the canard that the progressives or theological liberals said that conservatives care about doctrine that just divides and we love and that unites us. And um, I've noticed in the last, what, 10 years or so, as the theological progressives have got the upper hand in the culture, that now they are pushing the doctrine. They have certain doctrines about, let's say, sex and marriage and gender that you better agree with or you're not uh, on the right team. So I, I, I say I have this thing, I, I, a suspicion, but it's more than a suspicion, something I've observed that if you don't have much cultural power, you tend to talk about, hey, let's have a conversation. Let, let's talk about this. But if you have cultural power, you want to enforce the the dogma. And so on this issue, liberals and conservatives are really not that far apart. It just depends on who's got the power. And so the actual point I make in the chapter is that um, doctrine can divide. I mean, there is a, a boundary to the Christian faith, but doctrine also unites, right? If I've been... Um, in Thailand and in Beijing, where international churches, international fellowship of people from every nation, tribe, uh, Revelation's vision, right? You have people that disagree theologically about important matters, and they don't speak this, their, their heart language is not the same, but they gather to worship in church. Well, that's Jesus. And Jesus, you can't talk about Jesus without talking about doctrine, because who is Jesus? Well, doctrine tells us who he is. And so doctrine actually unites believers. So it's just it's too superficial to say doctrine divides and love unites. Love can divide. We're seeing right now that love is love is love is love that we hear a lot. But actually, even people who say love is love is love is love, they don't really believe it because there are some forms of love like child uh, pedophilia mm-hmm. or bestiality that they will they would oppose. So it, it's it's just a very superficial um, legend that is. Um, doesn't work if you stop and think about it. And I'm thinking, too, of the, the the unity aspect that Jesus told believers to love one another. So they both unite, doctrine and love, if it's loving fellow believers as Jesus says to. Right. Everyone, whether you're a conservative or a progressive, you have certain doctrines that you insist upon. And there's a boundary. And so it's not just that the it's not just conservatives who care about boundaries and doctrine. Everyone does. It, otherwise, you're not a set. Well, my guest today on His People is Dr. Michael Whitmer. He's professor of systematic theology at Cornerstone Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're talking about his new book, Urban Legends of Theology, 40 Common Misconceptions. Another one, well, I mean, many people say this, the Bible is our only authority. We think of uh, Sola Scriptura, which came out of the Protestant Reformation, case closed, and yet you're saying it's a little a little more nuanced than that. Right. Yeah, so Roman Catholics put tradition and scripture on the same level, the same plane. Calvin and Luther and the Protestants, they argued for sola scriptura, but not nuda scriptura, not all I need is my Bible. 
They said the Bible's our final authority, but it's not our only authority. We use tradition, like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, to read Scripture correctly. So, Scripture is our final, but not our only authority. We need, we need the creeds. We need the confessions. In fact, every church, every Christian has a tradition. You will have a tradition. There's no way around it. So, why not go with the great tradition? Don't start your own. So, if the creeds are an authority in addition to the Bible, how how are they used? How do you suggest the creeds are used in the, in the life of a church, in the lives of uh, believers? They're, they're glasses. And again, we're talking about the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the major tradition, the, the first four ecumenical church councils. They're glasses through which we read Scripture through, so that if I read the Bible, and I think my Bible, like in Hebrews, is telling me that Jesus became the son. He's not the eternal son, like some famous evangelical preachers have said. Well, the Nicene Creed tells me that's wrong, and there's reasons why that's wrong. And so, if I read the Bible in a way that disagrees with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, I know I'm reading it incorrectly, and I should change and read how the church has taught me to read the Bible. And, and so, where did these creeds come from? Let's say the Apostles' Creed, and, and why, are, why would we give it so much credibility okay. or authority? So, the Apostles' Creed comes from the, we think, the Roman Church's baptismal creeds. And we have record snippets of early church baptismal creeds from around the early church period. They're all very similar, all very much like the Roman Church's Creed, which is now what we have in the Apostles' Creed. So that when we read the Apostles' Creed together, we are standing with the earliest Christians just outside the, the time of the New Testament. It's just a concise statement of what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity. Everyone must believe that I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ is the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born the Virgin Mary and suffered in Pontius Pilate. This is all basic Christian orthodoxy. And I'm trying to remember what you said, Dr. Whitmer. Did you say we read Scripture through the lens of the creed, or do we read the creeds through the lens of Scripture? We read Scripture through the lens of the creed. Scripture is our final authority. Only Scripture is the Word of God. But the creeds are the glasses we put on to read Scripture correctly. They're guides. And they're, they're like, like a referee. If you disagree with it, they're a boundary. So if you disagree with the creed, you know you're incorrect. But within the, the boundary of the creed, there's lots of room to play and lots of room to interpret Scripture. And the creeds ultimately are, I think you've said, it's subservient to the Scripture. Right. right. Yeah, so we're not, Protestants do not put creeds on the same level as the Bible. But we don't throw them out either. If you throw them out, that's how you start a cult or that's how heresies form. And it's, it's so needless. So the creeds really have a unifying effect across the, the Christian world, if you will, that if you, if you assent to these doctrines, then at least in a basic sense, since these doctrines derive from Scripture and it's been agreed through history that they do so, then at least you have that, that unity across these, these basic Christian beliefs. That if you don't have the creeds to unify you, if everyone just reads the Bible for themselves, they can think the Bible can mean whatever they think it means, that's how you have disunity and disarray and schisms and yeah, lots of division. Well, the book is Urban Legends of Theology, 40 Common Misconceptions, and we're having a fascinating uh, discussion with Dr. Michael Whitmer. He is uh, a professor at Cornerstone Theological Seminary in Michigan. How about this one, Dr. Whitmer? You should pray like it all depends on God and work like it all depends on you. 
That sure sounds good. I'm sure I've said it. <laughs> yeah, so I want to pray like like it all depends on God, but then work hard like it all depends on me. That's exhausting. That's how you wear yourself out. Who wants to – I don't ever want to think it all depends on me. I want to pray and work like it all depends on God. And my text here would be Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You work hard. Why? Not because it all depends on you. You work hard because God is at work in you, both the will and to do his good pleasure. We must strive in the Christian life, but it's always a dependent striving. We depend on the Holy Spirit. And because the Spirit is at work in me, that's why I want to work hard. Because now my efforts have a, have a shot. They have a chance. If it ever did depend all on me, I'd have no chance. How about this one? You should not waste your life on temporal things, things that are going to perish, things that are uh, temporal, temporary. Um, focus on eternal things. There's well, truth in there, obviously. It sounds really good So you think about it. So what gives something meaning or significance is not, does this thing last or not? Think about everything in your life, You what you eat, what you wear. I'm going to mow my lawn later today. No, none of that's going to last. It's all temporary, but it still matters. You know why it matters? Because God rewards me for taking care of my lawn and by taking care of my clothes and, and, and caring about what I eat. Just because something is temporary doesn't mean it's not important. And just because something lasts forever doesn't mean you should live for it. The lake of fire lasts forever. And I've never heard someone say, so live for that because it never goes out of existence. Mm -hmm. So we want to avoid sin. The, the point is we don't want to go through life trying to avoid things because they're temporary. You will go crazy. C.S. Lewis said in his great article, Learning in Wartime, you will read something. You will eat something. You will wear something. It's not about you can't just disengage. But you want to avoid sin, not stuff. Stuff, things are not my problem or yours. Sin is my problem. So I can make an idol out of my stuff. Now that's sin. I, I, want, I must not do that. But just to say because something is temporary, it's not worth your time, that is very pious sounding. But if you actually take it seriously, you will go insane and you'll drive everyone you live with crazy. It's just not livable because we're humans and we're living in a world in which things die and, and they fade. And that's okay. We still want to take care of them for Jesus. Being good stewards. Right. Now, I don't know if this one is, is the most popular or the most uttered out of these 40, but you should not judge. Uh, tell, tell us about that. I mean, Jesus did say that, judge not lest you be judged. That's the one verse everyone knows is in the Bible. <laughs> and they say it in a very judgmental way, usually. Um, so in context, Jesus could not mean don't use discernment, because in context, he says, don't take the splinter out of your brother's eye if you have a moat in your eye, which is true. But that's assuming you can see the splinter in his eye and judge the moat in your eye. So in, he talks about in the context, don't cast pearl before swine, which assumes you can judge who's swine and what are the... So, He's not saying don't use judgment, don't use discernment. In fact, elsewhere, Jesus did say, judge with just judgment, judge rightly. So Jesus actually commands us to judge. What he means by don't judge is don't be judgmental, don't condemn, don't um, use discernment, but don't damn people. God makes those judgment calls. It's not your job. 
And here's another one. Uh, so often, uh, the idea of shame is just just even feeling shame is said to be a bad thing. You shouldn't feel shame. And what about that? I should never feel shame. That's commonly believed in our mm-hmm. culture today. I would imagine in in a number of Christian circles too. The problem with saying we should never feel shame is we should never feel false shame or what I call creation shame. Mm. We should never feel shame for who we are. But if I have done something that's fallen, if I have sinned, if I have committed an offense, if I have real guilt, that real guilt should produce in me real shame. In fact, if it doesn't, I'm a psychopath. Someone who's done terrible things and doesn't feel shame, they need psychological help. Uh, Another problem with saying we should never feel shame is right guilt and right shame. I want to feel that so I can give it to Jesus. If you try and talk someone out of their shame that rightly is theirs, then they can't give it to Jesus. They're just left with it. So instead of saying um, we should never feel shame, we need to distinguish between creation shame, image of God. We should never feel shame for who we are. We are infinitely valuable and of great worth. But fallenness, our sin, for my sin, I should feel guilt and shame, and I want to feel both so I can, with redemption, give them all to Jesus. He died to take away my guilt and my shame, not to leave me in denial about my guilt and my shame. So there is a solution to our guilt, to our shame, and Mm -hmm. the solution is Jesus himself. If we're not honest about our guilt and shame, then we can't receive his forgiveness, his salvation. Well, Dr. Whitmer, there's another one I I, I do hear sometimes, and uh, that is we are all God's children. And I just wanted to read a verse uh, to just kind of frame it a little bit. Um, In uh, Acts chapter 17, I know you know it, uh, Paul's talking to the philosophers on Mars Hill, and he's talking to them that uh, even as your own poets have said, uh, we are his offspring, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, so on. So, He's he's talking in the context, uh, talking to non-believing philosophers. So I'm just wondering, how do we understand we are all God's children? Right. So in in the chapter, I distinguish between a, a general use of, that you just referred to, that we're all image of God. Adam is the father of the whole human race. So in that general broad way, we are all God's children. But in the most narrow, most intimate way. Uh, when we say as Christians, we are God's our father, that means he's adopted us. So the chapter gets into um, adoption and and salvation by grace through Jesus, that um, only those who've been adopted by God are God's children in the most intimate but special place. So we're not all just all God's children, like we're all okay with God. But there's a broad sense in which that's true. Mm -hmm. We're We're all God's children. Here's another one. Perhaps, at least in the broader culture, this one's huge. I don't know how accepted it is in Christian circles, but God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, well, that's you hear that a lot. I do hear a lot even in church and Christian ah. circles where um, it's, it's the American way, right? Uh, people think that is a verse in the Bible. Actually, it comes from Benjamin Franklin, Poor Richard's Almanac. Uh, the, the Bible says, actually, God helps those who cannot help themselves. And so the, I think the most tempting heresy that Americans struggle with is Pelagianism. Pelagius was a early fifth century heretic who thought that God gave me a good nature, healthy mind, a free will, and I just got to gut it out and try hard. And so um, the gospel is that you can't do this, but someone 
has, someone can. And so I'm a, a pastor now as well, and the, the big theme that I keep repeating to my church week after week is, we're just going to rest in Jesus. Boast in Jesus, rest in Jesus. We can't do this. He has. We're going to rest in him. If if I could help myself, then I can't tell you why Jesus died. He didn't. He died for no reason. And just I, time has gone so quickly, Dr. Whitmer, but I did want to ask you, uh, there's just a few more. One is death. This is getting into the last things. Death is not a tragedy for Christians. You think of the, the believer, of course, has gone to be with, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Uh, they, they, there's no more pain and, and, and so on. So praise God that God brings good things out of death. But the Bible never calls death a good thing, except in Job. If you're Job, maybe death can feel like a good thing. But even in Philippians 1, 21, where Paul says to die is gain, in the next chapter, Philippians 2, verse 24, Paul says, my friend Epaphroditus almost died, and God was kind and gracious to him and spared his life. Mm. Paul calls death in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, he calls it the last enemy. I want to say that death, I never want to make death seem anything less than my enemy because Jesus conquered death. If I... If I minimize death, I also minimize Jesus who beat it. So I want to make much of death and how much I hate death so I can make much of Jesus. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, death is thrown in to the lake of fire four verses after Satan is thrown in. Death is literally the last enemy to go. We will live forever in heaven. That's commonly said as well in in Christian circles, but you're saying that's uh, an urban legend. Yeah, so praise God that when we die, if we're in Christ, our soul goes to heaven. What a comfort. Praise God. But the Christian hope is not my soul goes to heaven and gets stuck. We pray, we long for the three R's, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the restoration of all things. So the, the, the our final destiny is not as a disembodied soul up in heaven somewhere. Our final, where this ends, is as a full, fully resurrected, restored human being living on this restored earth with Jesus. Our, our Savior. And for the rest of the story, people can go to the Bible or the book of Revelation, right? It's, it's uh, yeah. laid out there very graphically. Yeah. Well, well, Dr. Whitmer, thank you so much. I know there are many other that we have not touched on, uh, Urban Legends of Theology, 40 Common Misconceptions, in your book. Uh, I, I should have asked you maybe this at the beginning, but who are you aiming the book for, and what is your ultimate hope for the book? So, aiming it at Christians, and it's the books that can be used as a college textbook, or I think a sophomore in high school or above can read it with profit. I like to write for my parents. Neither one of them went to college, but they're smart people and can read. Mm -hmm. I think if I can communicate it to them without um, sacrificing the depth, then anyone can get it. So that's what I like to do: is write for educated readers, Christians who don't need a a college education, but if you like to read and um, don't mind being stretched, you you can get this very very easily. And your your ultimate hope for the book to encourage the faith of Christians. I want to I want us all to rest in Jesus, to boast in Jesus, and celebrate the the good news. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Cornerstone Theological Seminary professor Dr. Michael Whitmer author of Urban Legends of Theology, 40 Common Misconceptions. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Nancy Piercy, 
explaining why there's a toxic war on masculinity. The uh, expectation developed that men would come home from the dog-eat-dog -dog world of in business and industry and commerce. When they came home at night, they were supposed to be reformed and refined and renewed in their biblical commitments, you know, by their loving wives. So, in a sense, you know, as one historian puts it, American culture is letting men off the hook. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.